You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history, and at the current moment in time, too many cookies on my kitchen table. Um, That's right, if you are listening in real time as this episode is released, we are post the holiday season 2023. Uh, In the immortal words of NSYNC, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Today's episode is going to be one that I wanted, I've wanted to cover this person for a long time, but I felt like I should save the episode for like a December, a January drop, because this is the darkest time of year. We are currently post winter solstice, but it's 4.50pm as I'm recording this and it is dark outside, okay? So today's episode, in my mind, is a little way of injecting I don't know, just just some nurturing of our souls back into the season at a time when we, I think, all kind of need that. Um, that's not to say you can't listen to this episode if you're in like the middle of June when you're getting to it, but you know that just know that was the original intention here. Before we go any further, this is your cursory reminder to give the show a rating, preferably five stars, a kind review. Those things really help us get in front of new audiences through all of the various podcasting apps. And if you're feeling cheerful, generous, go ahead and tell your friends when you see them on New Year's Eve. Tell your grandma when you see her on New Year's Day um, to give the show a listen. Specifically, I think your grandma would find a lot here to enjoy because I know mine do. (laughs) With that, though, I will just segue right into the topic at hand today as we are talking about a woman who's really become an icon in feminist theory, especially in the past, I don't know, two decades. Her name is Hildegard von Bingen. If you did not take a women in arts course in um, college, that's completely okay. But that's where I was first introduced to her. And ever since then, I have been utterly fascinated with her. Um, Hildegard was a 12th century, well, she was a lot of things. She was a mystic, a theologian, a poet, an artist. She was a musician, a composer, a scientist, um, an administrator. She was a director of a convent. um, And above all, she was kind of a visionary. So I'm very excited to get some airtime with her today. We're situating ourselves in the, I guess you could say the Dark Ages. Hildegard was born in the year 1098. She was the last child of 10 from a noble family in Bingen am Rhein, which is now just known as the Rhineland in Western Germany. 
She was regarded as kind of a sickly and a weak child from the time of her birth, um, but her family did have wealth and access to the power structures of the Dark Ages. Hildegard experienced visions, which she later called illuminations, beginning as a young child, but notably she did not reveal them to her family or anyone around her. She recalled experiencing quote, shades of the living light from as early as age three, which has to be terrifying. Um, but she didn't come to understand them as visions until she was five years old. When she was eight, she was sent by her parents to be dedicated to the Benedictine monastery at Disabodenburg. Um, it was very common for medieval parents with, especially with large families to send one of their children to live a monastic, a religious life. Um, poor families might have done this just as a means to provide their children with housing, food, and education, uh, because, you know, that stuff gets expensive. <laughs> but more well-to-do parents like Hildegard's could have been motivated more by the education offered in religious life, um, as well as to assure themselves and the rest of their families places in heaven. You know, you have, I mean, I hate to use the comparison, but it's like an anchor baby situation. You have a, a member of your family in religious life dedicating everything that they are to God. That has to bode well for the rest of you, I guess, in their thinking. Um, and remember, the, the church still dominated society at this time. It's the most important pillar of society. It's where you would go to get approval for all sorts of things. Um, so also dedicating a child to the church could be seen as kind of a donation, um, an offering to the, not just the religious structure of the church, but the social arm of the church as well. So Hildegard at this monastery at Disabodenburg lived with a noblewoman named Jutta, spelled J-U-T-T-A. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. Um, Jutta was six years Hildegard's senior. So if Hildegard's eight, then this, this woman is 14, but you know, that's enough to consider her um, fully grown and authoritative, because Jutta was the abbess or the head nun at Disabodenburg. She lived as an anchoress, who is a person who withdraws completely from secular society to literally serve as a, quote, anchor in this world for God. She lived a life of complete religious devotion, not just taking, you know, the typical religious vows of a nun, but also being completely cut off from the rest of the world. So for context, Hildegard and the other nuns at Disabodenburg were enclosed or cloistered, meaning that they didn't interact with the world at large. But Jutta was an example of a nun who took things one step farther. She lived in a one-room shelter, which would have had just one window through which she could receive food and interact with the other people um, at her abbey. Jutta was also an ascetic, meaning that she avoided every kind of indulgence and she lived a very disciplined life. She practiced uh, penitential self-flagellation, she wore a chain under her clothes, and she prayed, prayed, ba bleh, she prayed barefoot even in winter. Um, and she even followed such a restrictive diet that even when she was ill, she wouldn't, she wouldn't take in any extra nutrition or food. Jutta did teach Hildegard to write and to read the Psalms and to play a string instrument called the Psaltery. Um, and Hildegard worked for Jutta in the monastery's garden and she tended to the sick there. She did, <laughs> this is kind of shady. Hildegard did write that for all her religious devotion, Jutta was not learned enough to provide her with like a sound biblical foundation and to teach her to interpret the Bible. Um, so she had to seek that elsewhere. 
Um, Hildegard's other teacher at Disabodenberg was a monk named Volmar, who was prior of the monastery. So he oversaw a group of monks. Disabodenberg was what's called a double house, meaning that both monks and nuns lived their religious lives there. So Jutta and Hildegard formed the nucleus of what was then a growing community of women at Disabodenberg. Hildegard took her vows there and became mother superior when Jutta died in the year 1136. Now, all the while, Hildegard has continued to receive her visions, or her illuminations, as she calls them, uh, from God, although she largely concealed them from her community. She experienced these through all five of her senses. So you had visions, sights, you had hearing, she would hear music. She also experienced these visions through taste, smell, and touch. In 1141, at the age of 42, Hildegard received instructions from God to, quote, write down that which you see and hear. Now, in her most famous work, which uh, we're going to pull an artwork from to look more closely at in a little bit, this is called Scivius. Hildegard declares, quote, I spoke and wrote these things not by the invention of my heart or that of any other person, but as the secret mysteries of God, I heard and received them in heavenly places. And again, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, cry out, therefore, and write thus. Now, Hildegard had told Jutta about her illuminations, and Jutta had told Volmar, the monk, but Hildegard was still hesitant to, like, actually put them down on paper to record them. She actually became physically sick the longer she put off preserving her visions on paper. And to her, there was, like, a direct correlation there. She wrote, quote, Though I saw and heard those things, I refused to write for a long time through doubt and bad opinion and the diversity of human words, not with stubbornness, but in the exercise of humility, until laid low by the scourge of God, I fell upon a bed of sickness, then compelled at last by many illnesses and by the witness of a certain noble maiden of good conduct, and by that man whom I had secretly sought out and found, I set my hand to writing." So she's saying that God punished her with sickness because she disobeyed or kind of ignored his instructions. Um, at the end of that passage, the, quote, noble maiden that she refers to was a nun named Richardus or Ricardus of Stade, who was a close confidant as well as Hildegard's secretary and her advisor um, as she was the abbess at Disabodenberg. And the man who she had, quote, secretly sought out was Volmar, and he would become a very close confidant for the rest of her life as well. Now, together, those two encouraged or even insisted that Hildegard actually go ahead and record her experiences. Also in that passage, Hildegard says that it wasn't out of fear or pride that she was reluctant to record her visions, but instead she ascribes that to humility. She didn't think herself worthy of contributing her perspective to the historical record. Or at least that's kind of how she wants us to approach her visions. In 1146 or 1147, when she was in her late 40s, Hildegard finally revealed her illuminations to a wider circle of religious figures. Um, she did this only through like a very rigorous course of action that, again, I think was meant to make it known that she was revealing these visions 
for the glory of God alone, not for her personal gain. So she first asked permission from her abbot, um, so the director of the monks at Disabodenburg, who did grant his blessing for her to make them public. But she then wrote a letter to the French cleric Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, He was a leading figure in the new Cistercian order, um, also a co-founder of the Knights Templar, so that's cool. And today he is regarded as a saint, so he's Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. In a letter to him, Hildegard disclosed that she had been experiencing religious visions, and she declared once again her humility. She also sought recognition for what she saw as her new calling to make these visions public. But she does this all against a backdrop of, like, some genuous religious fervor. So she writes, quote, And so I beseech you, through the serenity of the Father, through his wondrous word, through the sweet fluid of remorse, through the spirit of truth, through the sacred sound to which all creation resounds, through the word that gave birth to the world, through the sublimity of the Father whose sweet veriditas released the word in the virgin's womb, where it took on flesh like a honeycomb built out from honey. May this same sound, the power of the Father, descend on your heart and elevate your soul so that you do not remain idly numb to this person's words." So that, I think, gives you a taste of Hildegard's, her, I mean, her just gift of language. It's so illustrative. It's so, like, rich, that passage. And that's just, like, a fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent of her entire body of work. You might have also caught an unfamiliar word in that passage, um, veriditas. This is actually not a Latin word that I can translate for you. It's not in a dictionary. Um, It's actually a concept that was coined by Hildegard herself. That which she considered to be veriditas to Hildegard was an attribute of a divine nature. The word can be interpreted to mean many things, but it usually connotes vitality, freshness, abundance, and growth, kind of like the greenness of a new springtime. She uses this word as a metaphor for both physical and spiritual health. Now, St. Bernard seemed impressed by Hildegard's religious conviction in his reply, so good for him. Um, He almost kind of demurs to her as the expert. He writes, quote, When the learning and the anointing, which reveals all things to you, are within, what advice could we possibly give? And that's the royal we there. (laughs) Further approval came from no less than Pope Eugene III, who was read some of Hildegard's visions at a synod from 1147 to 1148. Um, He gave Hildegard his blessing to not only document them as revelations from the Holy Spirit, um, but this also meant that this papal approval also meant that Hildegard's writings, once they made it to the wider world, would enjoy like instant credence, instant authority, rather than being kind of skeptically received, or even they could have been regarded as heretical, like very easily. But the Pope, he received some initial excerpts from Hildegard's first major work, um, and he completely approved of them. So that text that those those works he received came from was called Scivias, which comes from the, the Latin phrase Scivias Domini, uh, meaning know the ways of the Lord. Hildegard was working on this in the late 1140s, and it was completed in 1151 or 52. It was a three-volume work, which documented, um, I've seen anywhere from 26 to 33, mentioned as a number, um, but 26 to 33 of her mystical visions. For each one, she described what she had seen, and then she recorded what she heard while it was being, um, you know, imparted to her. Some of these, these things she heard were explanations of what she believed to be the voice of heaven. 
I do want to note that it is unclear whether the Pope saw like a completed version of these first couple visions when he heard the excerpts of Hildegard's work. And by complete, I mean accompanied by illustrations, um, because Scivias does include many beautiful, magnificent, illuminated pages, so pictures. Um, and a lot of these used feminine in imagery um, to depict even aspects of God and creation. So that's something that kind of goes against the grain of what the church was teaching at the time. So I will say I, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, maybe she kept those back until she received approval to get her writings out in the world. Maybe she just sent her writings in. Um, but Hildegard was also creating images for all of her works. And Scivias is kind of the most magnificent place where you can see these. It is the frontispiece, the leading image from Scivias, the one you would open to when you open the book for the first time, that most people know. And this is considered a self-portrait of Hildegard. It's unknown whether Hildegard actually painted any of these illuminations herself, um, but the conception and design of all of them would have come very closely under her own direction. She probably dictated them to whatever artisan was putting these images down on paper. If you'd like to hear more about um, the process of creating an illumination and a manuscript in the Middle Ages, I will refer you back to our episode. Um, it's actually an interview with the author of the wonderful novel Cities of Women, which details another medieval proto-feminist, Christine de Pizan, um, and her life. But go back and listen to that if you want to hear more about the process of creating these medieval illuminated manuscripts. Some scholars support the idea that Hildegard was actually sketching outlines of her visions as she received them, um, and perhaps later in life when she had essentially a staff around her at her monastery, uh, maybe she was even dictating them out loud to be recorded on paper, like, immediately. So that's that's a possibility. And the visions in Scivias are so detailed that I think that lends credence to this theory. Um, but anyhow, the, the frontispiece... I think it sort of acts as like an author's note as well as a self-portrait. It's kind of an explanation of how Hildegard received, related, and recorded her visions. Now, this self-portrait image shows Hildegard seated. She's likely sketching out a vision on the tablet on her lap, um, and she's receiving, she's in the act of receiving one of her illuminations or visions. And she is very likely dictating to the monk who is peeking through the window, who I think is meant to be Volmar, who again was her closest confidant. The first thing people notice and comment on usually are the tentacle-like appendages, which engulf Hildegard's head from the ceiling. These are actually meant to be interpreted as tongues of flame, which are falling upon her. These, I think, can be read one of two ways, depending on how you approach this picture. Number one could be these flames are providing her with divine, like, creative inspiration here. Or if you're approaching this from a more religious background, these could be read as like the direct presence of God in Hildegard's, I, I almost want to call it her creative process, but that's not quite right. Because remember, Hildegard wanted the world to understand that it was not creativity or her own like willingness to be writing that spurred her on. It, as she was a cloistered nun, she was an abbess. The tongues of flame here, I think, need to be understood as 
um, what religious viewers would see them as, as the Holy Spirit itself descending on her like tongues of fire. So these, I don't think in my reading, are just an abstract symbol of inspiration, but rather they are a literal manifestation of God. Because in the Catholic Church, flame imagery was and still is associated specifically with the Holy Spirit and the Pentecost. Flame was a form taken by the Holy Spirit, who is in turn um, part of God, or God is a part of the Holy Spirit, um, as described by the Holy Trinity. Pentecost is a celebration that is marked 50 days after Easter, um, and it is celebrated kind of as the birthday of the Christian Church. Tradition holds that on this day, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, his apostles were gathered together to celebrate the Jewish festival of the harvest. Suddenly, a great wind was heard and, quote, tongues of fire appeared on their heads. The disciples each began to speak in tongues, which is commonly interpreted as the beginning of the apostles preaching across the world about the life of Jesus and the word of God. And this is what makes Hildegard's writings and visuals so remarkable. She's taking an emblem here that was typically reserved for imagery of like the 12 apostles, and that's it. And she's applying it to herself to explain how she has obtained the insight that she is now relating to us. To kind of back that up, the structure around her, it almost looks like a tiny church or a monastery. There's like two towers on the side, and then she sits beneath this vaulted ceiling. And yes, this could have been merely a visual representation of where Hildegard lived. I will post pictures of Disabodenberg on the Instagram. Um, but I think we can also take this symbol a little bit further. She's sitting literally within the church, and by extension, she is under the church's protection. That's a reminder, I think, that she is recording her visions with the full endorsement of the papal authority and the church establishment, and that lends credence to everything that she has to relate to us. Even the, I, I love this detail, even the footstool underneath her feet is not just a footstool, rather it's an object that has meaning. When there are so few details, like this is a pretty bare scene here, aside from, you know, Hildegard and Volmar. When there are so few details, especially in a piece of religious art, I think it's always safe to assume that everything is intentional. So believe it or not, footstools have a traditional meaning ascribed to them in early Christian art, or at least kind of a connotation that has been attached to them. Because pictures of the apostles, when they were shown seated, composing either their letters or the gospels, often have a footstool resting beneath their feet. So Hildegard is once again, literally placing herself on equal footing with the very founders of the Catholic Church. The monk Volmar, I think, is also a very important intentional addition to the scene. Besides being a literal presence in Hildegard's life as her friend, her secretary, and her confessor, he also represents that there was an audience now for Hildegard's divine wisdom. The whole point of her recording her visions was to share them. So Volmar, even though he is integral to what literally happened, the narrative of how these visions came to be recorded on paper, I think he's also a stand-in for the rest of us who are hearing the, the words that Hildegard has to impart to us and who are meant to benefit from her writing these down and creating these visuals and these illuminations. 
And I think we can know this because Pope Eugene III, he did not simply declare Hildegard's visions to be valid when he heard them in 1147. He also granted her the authority to preach which is a very, very hot topic. Even to this day, female religious authority is a contentious issue in the Catholic Church. Um, and you can see that in, in Hildegard's own writings. Throughout her life, she is very aware of her status as a woman. And she almost leverages it to her advantage. She is routinely making self-deprecating references in her documents of her vision. She calls herself unlearned, and she actually appeals to male religious authority as like a higher power in order to garner support for her messages and the work that she's doing. Claiming that her visions came directly from God and that she was only sharing them like with very great reluctance. I think that actually did a lot to convince people that she was the real deal. Um, I'm not saying that she wasn't, you know, for the record, just that this this was a contrib contributing factor to Hildegard gaining a platform for herself and for her visions. She regarded herself as just the vessel for these messages, and that I think made them more palatable to an audience who may not have been receptive to an actual female philosopher and thinker. Again, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had there about whether that was just a tactic that Hildegard was employing to spread her message and her work farther, um, or if she genuinely believed that. But regardless, her teachings and interpretations um, became famous. For the remainder of her life, she would die in 1179. She commanded a lot of respect and she became known as a prophetess. She even was called the Sibyl of the Rhine, Sibyl being an ancient Greek seer. Her teachings were heeded by everyone from the common people to, I think she had like four popes during her lifetime. She even wrote to emperors and as far as King Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine over in England. People would write to Hildegard for advice and for comfort. Pilgrims began to visit her convent to consult with her, and the convent itself saw an uptick in women enrolling and entering monastic life as nuns. Hildegard actually went on no less than four preaching tours across Western Germany. She became widely traveled as a result of her visions. Another thing that was pretty uncommon for women in that day who were not often leaving the town that they were born in. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? 
<laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Now, in 1147, so as she's in the process of recording her visions, Hildegard, she wanted to move her nuns away from Disabodenburg to a new convent that she would establish in nearby Rupertsburg. This came following, quote, several disputes with male monks at Disabodenburg, as well as the growth of Hildegard's own community to about 20 nuns. So the abbot of her original monastery, Disabodenburg, was against Hildegard leaving um, because her presence attracted not just new enrollees, the new nuns that were coming in as a result of her fame, but also their dowries, their their money. Um, just like brides entering into a marriage in the Middle Ages, many newcomers into monasteries came in with significant financial endowments, um, sometimes even goods and land, which became the property of their new religious house. I do love pointing out whenever I have the chance that throughout a lot of history, dowries and, and bride prices, things like that, they weren't meant to be like paying off a groom to take your daughter off your hands. They're actually meant to provide a bride with the same level of comfort she had received at home in her new life. So these dowries were meant to help nuns entering monastic life remain clothed and sheltered and eating well. <laughs> Those are things that need to happen when you're living in a religious community. And while nuns would produce, I don't know, textiles and things like that, they weren't able to, you know, earn a living. <laughs> so these dowries helped to support the religious community and all the work that the church did. So naturally, I think this is something that the abbot at Disembodenburg would be reluctant to give up, especially as um, Hildegard's star was on the rise and maybe attracting some wealthy new nuns. <laughs> but there were also issues of politics and power influencing Hildegard's decision to leave and strike out on her own. Remember, Disembodenburg was a double house, meaning that there were both monks and nuns housed there, and you can guess who wanted the most power out of that arrangement. Hildegard herself was an abbess, or a, like a mother superior, um, which did put her on equal footing with the abbot at Disabodenburg. Um, but the abbot there, he wanted Hildegard to occupy kind of a lower ranking position as a prioress. Um, a prioress would have still overseen her group of nuns, but he would she would have then reported to the abbot. Um, so here, Hildegard decided she was not going to do that. She went over the abbot's head and appealed instead to the archbishop, um, who gave approval for her to move to Rupertsburg. The abbot still did not allow the nuns to leave, however, until Hildegard was again stricken by an illness so bad that she became paralyzed and unable to move. I say again because Hildegard attributed this illness, much like the one she received after her instructions to record her visions, um, she attributed this to God being displeased at her not following his orders. In this case, the orders to move and establish a new convent. Only once she was completely unable to be moved from her bed, I saw a reference to the fact that it was only once the abbot himself tried to move her and couldn't um, did he grant permission for the nuns to go out and start their own monastery. So Hildegard left her home of over 40 years and established her very own Benedictine monastery and gained much more independence as a result. She did take the monk Volmar with her, who became the provost of Rupertsburg and Hildegard's personal confessor and like her secretary or her scribe. 
he would have aided her greatly in finishing Skivias, which was finally completed in 1151 or 1152. Some other images in Skivios are worth taking a look at. Um, the illumination that accompanies the third vision in part one, I think that's one of the more famous one. It is a very richly detailed vision that she had of the cosmos or the universe. She described seeing, quote, a huge object pointed on top, which was surrounded by fire inside of which was kind of this huge like fireball all resting over a, quote, dark skin, which in the illumination kind of looks like a night sky. The, quote, object is kind of a pointed oval shape, and inside of it are concentric rings. I will leave a diagram as well as the original illumination on the Instagram, so you can kind of go in and decipher what everything is supposed to be. But in there are representations of all the elements. We have earth, wind, fire, and water. A professor at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, Abigail Favale, or Favale, I don't know, points out that this depiction of the universe with all of these layers is, quote, not a top-down hierarchy, but a cosmic egg with interconnected nested layers and the earth at its heart. Within each layer is a group of three kind of connected faces, so we total them up to 12 in all, which likely connects to religious number symbolism of the Middle Ages. This non-formulaic depiction of the universe, which is based solely on Hildegard's visions, makes her the first artist to use line and color to visually convey the supernatural or the otherworldly. This will be something we explore a little bit more actually in a special episode um, coming right after this one on a new book coming out, which uh, concerns women artists throughout history who depicted their experiences with the otherworldly. That's all I will say about that, but it was a fascinating conversation um, and I can't wait for you to listen to that episode. It will be an ideal companion piece um, for our Hildegard discussion here. Now, Hildegard, with this particular illumination, has also created an image that many um, <laughs> many read as bearing a striking resemblance to a vulva, um, much in the way that George O'Keefe's flowers are often considered to be, you know, part of the female anatomy. I think that's what's happening here with Hildegard. I don't know if she intended it, but that's what people are reading into it. So the earth at the very center of this like egg shape um, could be read as an opening. I, I think that's pretty easy to see. And then at the above that are two other circles, which could be, you know, other parts of the female anatomy. So while we're not in like feminist territory here, like we would be with someone like Christine de Pizan, who comes two centuries down the line. And while I don't also think that Hildegard was trying to be subversive or provocative or make any statements with this um, imagery, the fact remains that she was one of the very first figures to, quote, deal seriously and positively with the idea of the feminine. She had this understanding that she was a woman and she had these visions, this divine inspiration that flowed through her. So I think that probably colored a lot of how she described um, what she was seeing and, and, and receiving. Abigail Favale again points out that Hildegard's theology, quote, followed, following sacred scripture, emphatically affirms that both women and man carry the imago dei, the image of God, which endows each sex with equal dignity before God. So this is a classical debate in Christianity. Um, and in modern times, especially in like evangelical 
churches. This conversation will quickly devolve into the realm of like, who's dominant and who should subjugate themselves. <laughs> That's not where we're going here. The Catholic Church does actually hold that the two sexes, as they define them, were created to have different purposes on a biological level, but they are still equal in their humanity and in what they bring to the table. Hildegard, quote, stands apart from her male predecessors like Plato and Aristotle, who also wrote pretty humorous um, <laughs> uh, philosophy about the genders. Um, but she stands apart from them in this debate for her, quote, ability to uphold the two principles of difference and equal dignity and still maintain that women were whole, complete individuals. She was way ahead of her time in this regard. Um, actually, in the Enlightenment, we would go off the rails a little bit and we would have this idea rise called fractional complement complementarity. Um, this is the idea that women and men on their own were incomplete, um, each representing just one half of the ideal, like fully integrated human being. Favale uh, writes, quote, woman was thought to provide half of the mind's operation, intuition, sensation, or particular judgments, and the man the other half, reason or universal judgments, which if added together produced only one mind. Sister Prudence Allen, who is a modern theologian, points out that, quote, when the specifics of the engendered contributions were identified in this way, quote, these fractional relations often combined stereotypes of a hidden traditional polarity with the man as superior to the female. So in other words, even though this theory holds that man and woman are each a half of the ideal person, Usually the more important characteristics are coming from the male end of things in that theory. Sister Allen goes on, quote, Hildegard frequently argues that men ought to develop the feminine qualities of mercy and grace, while women ought to develop the corresponding masculine qualities of courage and strength. In this way, even though she's designating particular qualities as masculine or feminine, a wholly integrated woman or man would have both aspects of their nature developed. And I think that's notable. You know, it is the Dark Ages. We're not going to be wholly progressive in our views here. But she's acknowledging that a person can be a complete person, whether they are male or female, through a little bit of spiritual development. Hildegard, for her part, wrote and composed an enormous body of her own original work during her lifetime, so I think this is something she knows pretty well. Um, in that body of work are nearly 80 musical compositions, making her one of the very first credited composers in Western music. In her time, most compositions, especially religious ones, were written down and shared completely anonymously. Her music is so important to mention here because it is the reason I think that many people know who Hildegard is. It's certainly the reason that she was quote unquote rediscovered after nearly 800 years of not being a prominent cultural figure. 77 of her lyrical poems, along with their musical accompaniments, which she also composed, were collected, I'm not even going to try and read the Latin, um, in a work called The Symphony of the Harmony of Celestial Revelations. In the 20th century, four of these would be chosen by Philip Pickett um, and his new London consort to perform um, in honor of the 800th anniversary of Hildegard's death. And this recording um, I don't know, can you say something went viral if it was the 1970s? This recording is how many people became introduced to Hildegard as a composer. And from there, I think it followed that her spiritual works entered the mainstream a little bit more. 
In her writings, Hildegard describes music as the means of, quote, recapturing the original joy and beauty of paradise. She considered music to be the point where heaven and earth could meet, and music was a key part of the mystical visions that she herself received. Think back to when she is writing to St. Bernard of Clairvaux. She writes in that little passage, um, where is it? Blah, 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 blah. Through the sacred sound to which all creation resounds, through the word that gave birth to the world, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> May this same sound, the power of the father, descend on your heart and elevate your soul. So she regards music as otherworldly, not just in like an abstract sense, but also it's the way that heaven shows up on earth. Through performing and listening to music, she thought that we could get as close as humanly possible to experiencing what it was like in heaven. I think it is natural that it follows then that Hildegard's belief was that music and instruments enabled us, and I think they existed solely to worship God in the most befitting fashion. She believed that harmony within music represented the balance of the body and soul, um, as well as the interconnectedness of mankind with the universe. So this is a very holistic view of existence here. She wrote that, quote, when man's spirit is well directed, he hears the song of the angels. I would encourage you to search for her compositions. I can't put them in the podcast because I do not want to get any copyright strikes, <laughs> but um, go search for them on the streaming platform of your choice. You can literally type Hildegard von Bingen into the search bar and you will be able to find her entire body of work re-recorded for modern ears. Just be careful that you are clicking on the result for Hildegard von Bingen, not Hildegard von Blingen, who is an equally wonderful, um, it's a YouTube channel that is now on Spotify that re-records modern songs. Um, one of the most popular ones is Jolene uh, in the style of Hildegard von Bingen. So also delightful, but when it comes to, you know, being divinely inspired, I think you want to go for the original. Because divine is the best descriptor that I have for Hildegard's music. I don't think you have to be religious to find the spiritual in something like music. Um, and for, I mean, I'm Catholic, but when it comes to Hildegard's music, it's something that I can switch on and I'm not like transported to a church. I'm just, it feels like I'm sitting and like recalibrating my soul. That's, it's, it's beautiful. And that's why I think it's fitting that it's through her music that we rediscovered who Hildegard was in the 20th century. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 I think she would have liked that. That's not to say that we can only approach Hildegard um, as an artistic figure. She also wrote very long theological letters with influential religious figures across Europe. Um, she composed beautiful poetry as well as nine books. One of her most famous works, aside from Scivias, is known as the Ordo Virtutum, which is the oldest morality play ever discovered. It was the first one. It's an allegorical narrative of the struggle for a human soul, or what she called the anima, um, between the virtues and the devil. This was a project she took up as her new abbey at Rupertsburg was under construction, so at a time when she seemed to have turned her attention more towards virtue and vice than ever before as subjects for her writings. In a subsequent book called Liber Vitae Meritorum, The Book of the Rewards of Life, 
Hildegard offers one of the earliest descriptions of purgatory, which is the spiritual realm that Catholics believe offers a kind of a stop between earth and heaven, where a soul can kind of work off its debt (laughs) and its sin before entering paradise. So at this point, it's safe to say that Hildegard's scholarly work um, as a theologian, a writer, and a composer of music and images that's, that's all pretty well understood. Less well known, actually, is her work in the sciences, which included writings about the natural world, medicine, and even language itself. So that last one, her lingua ignota, which is Latin for unknown language, was a specialized secret language for use in Hildegard's spiritual pursuits. She invented over a thousand words, which are a blend of Latin and high German, and recorded them in kind of a glossary. She also wrote out her words using a mystical script consisting of 23 symbols that kind of stand in for different letters. It's very possible that this language was divinely inspired, coming to Hildegard much like her visions did, um, and it's likely one of the world's first constructed languages, so a language invented for a specific purpose. So move over, Tolkien, (laughs) and how many languages did he come up with? Like, several, at least. One of Hildegard's ministers once wrote in a letter to her um, at a time when he was fearing that she was nearing death, quote, Where then the voice of the unheard melody and the voice of the unheard language? This suggests to me that Hildegard's lingua ignota was known at least to those close to her, um, but there was nobody familiar enough with it who could teach it after she was gone. So it wasn't I don't think it was meant for wider use. It was kind of her own personal system of of um, almost interpreting her visions at the same time as she was recording them. This also provides, I think, more hints that the lingua ignota was divinely inspired, like her visions, um, since this letter compares it to the unheard melody, the divine music that she would hear when she received her visions. Today, we only have part of the lingua ignota as it only survives in two manuscripts um, called Ignota Lingua per Simplicium Hominum Hildegardum Prolata, uh, which translates to an unknown language spoken by the simple human Hildegard, self-deprecating to the end. Now, if all of that weren't enough to prove to you that Hildegard could, like, do it all, she also became well-known as a gifted healer. She used herbs, tinctures, even precious stones in what she called spiritual healing. So she may have been the first kind of holistic healer in that sense, combining the natural sciences with contemporary medical wisdom, as such that it was in the Dark Ages, um, with spiritual considerations in order to improve a person's health outcomes. She was also one of the pioneers of like a hospital style approach to treating the sick, putting them all in one room so that she and her nuns could minister to them. Working in her monastery's garden and infirmary, Hildegard came to regard the human body as a microcosm of the cosmos, which was in turn a quote, ordered, harmonious whole. She also, surprisingly, had a pretty solid understanding of human sexuality. Um, she's covering a wide breadth of topics here. I do, I just, I don't know. I want to include this because I think it's, it's fascinating as, as someone who's a theological figure that she also had this grasp on, well, reproduction. We'll just, we'll just say it. 
Um, so Abigail Vivali also writes, quote, Drawing on her experience as a physician, Hildegard provides a detailed account of human reproduction in which man provides the seed and women's bodies warm and alive in it, strengthening it and readying it for the implantation of the soul by God. So that's a very religious understanding of how reproduction occurs. Um, Favale leaves out that Hildegard also contributed what some regard as the first ever written description of the female orgasm in her descriptions of biology. So I will read to you... um, what Hildegard thought happened uh, at the moment of conception. So here we go. Quote, when a woman is making love with a man, a sense of heat in her brain, which brings with it sensual delight, communicates the taste of that delight during the act and summons forth the emission of the man's seed. And when the seed has fallen into its place, that vehement heat descending from her brain draws the seed to itself and holds it. And soon the women's sexual organs collapse and all the parts that are ready to open up during the time of menstruation now close in the same way as a strong man can hold something enclosed in his fist. Now, safe to say, the mechanics are not fully there, nor would they be for centuries to come, um, for many different reasons in that passage that I will not enumerate for you. But Hildegard, she's not just describing biology here, but she's also elevating the woman's, quote, active participation in generation much more than her contemporaries did. So to bring this back really quickly to her trailblazing perspective on gender and sex, Reproduction, in Hildegard's view, was not a matter of one player being active, the man, and the other passively receptive, the woman. As she would have understood reproduction, God first creates a human soul, and then the man and the woman would each have an equally active and important role in bringing it to life. Again, I think this is her whole thing. Women and men, they were created for different purposes, but they were equally dignified in their roles that that God made for them. In her work Physica, which is a nine-book series, Hildegard wrote short descriptions about fish, stones, plants, and animals. She also wrote Cause et Cure, Causes and Cures. <laughs> Notably, both of these works are completely scientific in their nature, um, and they contain no references to the spiritual or the otherworldly. Now, speaking of the scientific, as the world at large got more secular, it's natural that people are going to want to look for explanations on why supernatural or otherworldly phenomenon phenomena occur um and hildegard is one such figure that these explanations are sought after in 1917 one of the founders of kind of like the modern study of the history of medicine um dr charles singer examined hildegard's manuscripts and offered his conclusion that his vision her visions were most likely interpretations of the auras and visual effects associated with migraine headaches Singer, it seems, sought to explain the supernatural in a lot of his work. In 1928, he republished this 1917 essay um, in a volume called From Magic to Science, Essays on the Scientific Twilight. This paper, though, caused kind of like a minor storm of controversy. At the time, Hildegard was really only regarded within the church, um, but this paper attacked the divine origin of her visions. Now, today, the migraine theory is widely supported in scholarship. Um, Hildegard, by her own admission, was often a sickly person, right? She was ill a lot. Some have further suggested that she was affected by a disorder called hypergraphia, which is a behavioral condition indicated by an intense desire to write or draw. 
In Charles Singer's paper, he acknowledges Hildegard's genius, calling her, quote, a woman of extraordinarily active and independent mind, not only gifted with a thoroughly efficient intellect, but possessed of great energy and considerable literary power, and her writings cover a wide range, betraying the most varied activities and remarkable imaginative faculty. Um, but for the record, <laughs> he also calls Hildegard's lingua ignota, quote, a foolishly empty device that hardly merits the dignity of the term mystical. Um, it has, however, he goes on, exercised the ingenuity of several learned philo philologists. I hate that word. Um, he was also skeptical of her healing prowess, uh, chalking all of her successes up to, quote, exorcism and prayer and the manifestations of personal ascendancy over weaker minds. So this guy's a skeptic, I think, on the, on the whole. But regardless of the origins of her visions, I think it's what Hildegard is doing with them, her interpretation of them, that made her such an influential woman in, quote, a time and culture we think of as dominated by the male-oriented Latin church. She was a force to be reckoned with. Um, there's a story from just before her death in 1179, which holds that in the cemetery of her abbey, she had permitted the burial of a man who had been excommunicated from the church. So he should have been not allowed to be buried in a Christian you know, burial ground. But she had allowed it because she said he had been, quote, reconciled with the church and had received communion before his death. However, her bishop considered the man to have died out of communion with the church. He did not believe that, and he demanded that the body be dug up and moved. Hildegard refused, and as a result, the bishop placed the monastery under interdict, uh, which forbidden the celebration of mass and singing at the monastery. After much pleading, the interdict was lifted just a matter of months before Hildegard's own death. She died on September 17th, 1179. I could not find a cause of death for her, but as she took her last breaths, her nuns claimed that they saw two streams of light appear in the sky and cross over to the room where she lay. Hildegard von Bingen was set to be canonized as a saint um, as early as 1243. There was a whole investigation. To, to be considered a saint in the Catholic Church, there has to be proof that there have been miracles performed in your name, that kind of thing. Um, and this was all compiled by like several different um, delegates from Rome. But as the documents kind of laying the case out for her sainthood were finally en route to the Pope in Rome, they got lost. They simply never arrived. And because of this clerical error, which was never investigated or corrected, um, Hildegard would not be officially recognized as a saint for another 800 years. Um, this didn't stop people from venerating her kind of informally as Saint Hildegard because, you know, all the steps had been completed. <laughs> she, she even had like an informal saint day and popes, I think John Paul II referred to her as Saint Hildegard, even though she wasn't officially uh, at that time. It wasn't until 2012 uh, that Pope Benedict XVI would complete the process of canonizing Hildegard, making her fully officially a saint. He called her, quote, perennially relevant and, quote, an authentic teacher of theology and a profound scholar of natural science and music. He also described her as a, quote, beacon for homo, homo viator, which is the concept of journeying man, always on a quest for knowledge and purpose. 
Hildegard also became one of only four women to be recognized by the Vatican as a doctor of the church. This is an honor given to saints who made significant contributions to theology and doctrine through their writing. For the record, there are 37 total uh, doctors of the church, so 33 are men, 4 are women. Um, Hildegard is the only one who was an abbess, the other three women uh, were nuns. All of the four women who have been named doctors of the church uh, were added after 1970, so that's how long it took. The other three are Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, and who's the last one? Therese of Liso. So that's Hildegard. There you have it. Um, I think it's so fitting that she was rediscovered during the 70s when, you know, feminism was taking off and, and giving us this additional lens that we can now apply to things like theology and art history. Um, we are going to talk more about Hildegard very soon. Um, I won't say too much more now, but in about a week, if you're listening live, we will have a an interview with an author who has just published a book on women artists dealing with the otherworldly. The timing here, it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. So stay tuned for that. Um, I didn't even plug the Instagram at the beginning of this episode, but I think by now you know it's fine. So if you wanted to see any of the supplemental images for today's episode or any of the past episodes, um, you can follow us on Art of History podcast at on Instagram. Jesus, it's the holidays. This is rough. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you would like to send me a comment or a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach out to me via DM there or via email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. But yeah, that's going to be it for me today. Thank you so much for listening. Please go crank some Hildegard, whether uh, the real thing, Von Bingen, or the contemporary version, Von Blingen. Um, I think it will really benefit you, whichever version you choose. Um, I'm going to go enjoy the rest of this beautiful 2023 holiday season. I hope you are doing the same, and I will see you in the next one. Mm-hmm.